0: Us that we gather here to speak Jesus. And in this season of Advent, we have a tradition of lighting a candle. A candle each week. Now, you may have grown up with this tradition and it's something you know very well. But maybe for some of you, it's something new. And what Advent is, is a season of preparation. It's a season of darkness because it gets colder. The days are short. It gets dark outside. And so it's hard to feel that warmth and joy sometimes. So, Advent prepares our hearts, our minds, our bodies to a place where we recognize that the light is coming. And so we light a candle each week. Now, if you notice, the candles have different colors. We have four colors here. We have purple color, pink, and white. The first three weeks of Advent are the purple colors. They're the colors of preparation they're the colors of speaking in the name of Jesus and preparing our soul, our mind, our spirit that the light is coming. They're also the color of royalty because we're preparing for a king of kings to arrive. The fourth candle is the pink candle, and it's pink because pink is the color of rejoicing, of celebrating. So th- through the first 3 weeks we prepare, we get ready, we anticipate and then on the fourth week, we finally begin to rejoice and celebrate that the King of Kings is coming into this world. And then, of course, the white candle in the middle, the Christ candle, the holiness candle, it's white because it's spotless, sinless. It is the celebration that the Messiah, the Jesus, the King of Kings, has finally arrived. So today is my pleasure to light the, the three purple candles in our third week of Advent. So I'm going to do that. This is always a tense moment, but it's working. And I love these visual cues that we have, because we can talk about preparing, we can talk about anticipating, but when we have this visual of the actual lights being lit, it kind of sinks into our mind. It helps us to focus and prepare that in the darkness, a light is arriving. And I don't know if this is a tradition that your family has been part of or does, but what I encourage you to think about doing that with your family if you haven't done it before, or maybe you used to do it but you don't anymore, I'd love for you to consider to return to doing the Advent candles. To be able to talk with the family about all the different things we experience in the season, especially when it's dark. You know, we call it this seasonal disorder because there's less light. And to talk about that the light of the world has arrived and is coming. And we have something to anticipate and rejoice and prepare for. Now, I love this season even way, way before I even understood what Advent was. And maybe some of you are learning for the first time about Advent. I mean, you kind of know about Christmas. You know about the holiday season. But you're like, Advent, I didn't really know about that. Or maybe you grew up with it. But long before I knew what Advent was, I certainly anticipated Christmas. I was really excited about New Year's. I grew up in the Soviet Union, and New Year's was kind of the national holiday. That's when, you know, Santa, or as we call them, Father Frost, would arrive, and gifts would be given, and there would be, you know, fireworks, and festivities, and parades, and lots of memorable stuff. And so the season just made it really exciting, and I don't know what the traditional thing for you is during the season. Maybe it is lighting candles, maybe it's just you're anticipating that all your family's getting together as much as you can. And, uh, and you're thinking about it, and you're getting excited about it, or maybe it stresses you out because you got to buy a whole bunch of gifts, or maybe you're preparing to watch World Juniors on Boxing Day. Maybe that's your kind of big family tradition. Whatever it is, the season is certainly an exciting time of the year. Now, for me, this season has always been marked by family. Presence, uh, being together, and just really slowing down. Now, maybe... I say slowing down. Maybe it wasn't as much slowdown for, for my parents, for my mom who was cooking and grandma who's cooking and doing all those kind of things. I don't cook. Oh, I shouldn't say that. I'm just not good at cooking. But I, and I really enjoy gifting people to release them in their gifts of cooking and, you know, just, yeah, thank you. Um, but I just love this season because there's just this, for my family, there's this closeness that happened. There's just that extra warmth of home. And even though... It's cold and dark outside, it would be warm and light inside. And maybe that's actually why, because it's dark outside, it's cold inside. You felt this joy of being together. Now today, for me, the understanding of Advent has, has widened, has grown. Advent still centers around family and friends, for sure. But it also reminds me and opens me up to the surprising ways of God. You see, in Advent, we are invite, invited to wrestle with our longings to wrestle with our desires and hopes for a world marked by darkness and coldness, and yet anticipating grace, goodness, and peace right in the midst of the dark season. What was easier for me, and I know not all your experiences might be the same, maybe for you this season was marked with anxiousness and, and stress and pressures. I, I don't know what it, what it was like for, for you But for me, this season was really easy to feel love. It was palpable in those family settings. You could just, it was just brimming over. And it probably felt that way because the rest of the time, things just felt so busy. Even as a child, it felt the rest of the seasons, you know, felt hurried. School, work, short days, it all felt like a lot of stuff was always going on. And so finally, when Christmas, when Advent season would arrive, we could kind of slow down. And some of you may feel that as well. I find it interesting that no matter what your background or your experience, something in us desires closeness and family. The Hallmark family experience, right? We make the, there's Hallmark movies all the time, and they're all really cute and fun. And we all desire that whether we had that experience or not, we look forward to it, we hope for that kind of love. And not mushy or, uh, or um, unattainable kind of love. But love that is focused, dependable, kind, enduring, and present. And on top of it all, on top of this desire for love, something in us kind of seems to say it should be easy to be loved and to offer love. It should be easy. And yet it's, it's not. A little bit of confession time. Um, this past week I went to Costco. Don't get ahead of me. And my truck was acting up, and I needed to get a part, and things were just kind of going wrong. And I get to Costco, and I have to show my card like five times, and there's people everywhere, and there's lines. And, and, uh, and I found myself just, I had a mask on, but I found myself just muttering the whole time, and saying things, and shaking my head, and I was impatient. And like, to be honest, I was quite rude. And as I got my last thing at Costco, and I got in the truck, and I started driving home, I felt this wave of conviction come over me. Conviction that reminded me that, you know, this Sunday you're talking about love. And I thought, man, what was I doing? Why was I so hurried and frustrated? And I, and I remembered myself standing in line there, shaking my head because I picked the wrong line. I thought it would be the quick one, and of course, that was the long one, and, and looking at the other till people who are working way faster than the till person I had, and muttering to myself, and then looking back at the person behind me, thinking I would get sympathy, and only seeing it there like, grow up, dude. <sighs> and I was preparing to talk about love, and I couldn't even be loving for two hours, now, I know some of you may commiserate with me and say, well, two hours of shopping is like some kind of ring of hell. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I was still very, very wrong in how I acted. Reality is, is we want love in our life to be easy, but instead we find love to be difficult and confusing. And our longings are left wondering: you know, is it me? Is it them? Should I go? Should I stay? What is my hope for love? Love feels like it should be easy. Then why is it so difficult and confusing? Today we mark in Advent the week of love. We we mark it to remember, to hope, to wait, to embrace something that seems like it should be easy, but it's not at all. And if it's not easy, what do we do with that? How do we understand love? How do we understand it more than or deeper uh, or wider than the Hallmark movie where everything's, you know, frosted lens and looks so cute and nice? How do we understand love that doesn't seem to come easily to us and all it takes is to be in traffic or to go to Costco? So I say let's take a look at, at biblical love. What does the Bible teach us about love? What does the Bible teach um, say that love is. Now, and I want to look a little bit in an unusual place, and I say unusual not because people don't go there to look at love, it's just that typically in the Christian tradition when we talk about love, we want to unpack uh, maybe the Gospels, that's the good news of Jesus' life, his death and resurrection, and you really see his love lived out. Or maybe we go to the first letter to Corinth that Paul, Apostle Paul writes, and we go to chapter 13 and we look that love is patient and kind and doesn't envy, doesn't boast, it's not proud, it doesn't mutter at Costco. That's my translation. But today I want us to look instead at a small letter written by Jesus' disciple, one of his students, the one who's called Beloved Disciple. He's, of course, John, the son of Zebedee. And we will look at his first letter. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to flip it to First John. It's kind of towards the back of the New Testament. If you have your phone, you can click to it. And can I just say, if you don't have a Bible app, can I just recommend YouVersion? It's just such a great app. It's free, and there's tons of devotionals on there. There's tons of translations into every language and all the English translations, and you can just really get engaged with the Scripture. And it's so easy. And it was such a gift that something so good it's so easy and free so if you don't have it you version bible app it's free download it so first john we're going to look at that and first john is likely written in ephesus it's a city in, in asia minor and john had likely relocated there by this time now the reason i want to look at john's letter is because it's written somewhere 80 to 100 a.d so john is quite elderly at this point point. and the church the early church is now has a second or third generation of Christians, right? So things are happening, and the church is growing, and it's about in the third generation of Christians. And what we learn is, what we learn is that the thrill, the joy, the excitement of the early church is starting to to wane. Christianity has now somewhat become a habit for some. It's becoming a little bit traditional, even just a few years from Christ. Maybe for some it feels a little half-hearted already, a little nominal, maybe a bit confusing as well as there's lots of people teaching different things about Jesus in this time. And we know that because we see the urgency in the letters by the biblical writers. We see it in Paul, Peter, John, this is where I make the Ringo joke, but, and others. They're writing to teach, to correct, to guide, and something, there's, there's a shift that's happening in the church. People had grown up used to the church and something of the wonder is beginning to be lost. So John is writing at a time when some, some at least some in the church, have lost the thrill and the routine of life has began to set in. And again, the, like I said, there's new teachings, there's, there's misinformation was beginning to cloud people's thinking. So much was spread about Jesus denying one thing or saying another thing about him, teaching something he never taught. It was just rampant everywhere. It's as if they had Twitter and Facebook. People were searching and looking for hope, meaning and love, and all in the wrong places. Things weren't easy, so people were searching, and others took advantage. So John writes this letter in response to all the false teaching, all the confusion, everything that's going on, and he's reminded us to teach us and to clarify. And so this short first letter has these two kind of overarching great themes to say about God. So I'm just upfront going to say these themes and then we're going to get into the scripture. And one is that God is light. John says God is light, in him there's no darkness. He is light. And the second kind of overarching teaching in this in this letter is that is that John proclaims that God is love. So God is light, there's no darkness, but that God is love. And he is love. And because he's love, he loves us even way before we knew him or could even possibly love him back. So John's conviction in this letter is that God is self-revealing. He reveals that he's light and love because all of us, we we don't like darkness and we don't like hatred. So he's self-revealing and then he's self-giving. John continually, continually uses the contrast of light and darkness and love and hate throughout the whole letter. He reminds us that Jesus is light. And John is focused to remind us these two, two realities of God uh, are specifically the realities we, too, are to embrace. He says, that is, if we claim to walk in the light, we must love. So there's an action step right there. So that sounds really nice, right? Light, not darkness. Love, not hate. And if you're in the light, you must love. That sounds great. But what does that actually practically mean for us? Because as we discussed, love is difficult, and confusing. So let's read. First John, we'll go, we'll jump right into chapter two and we'll start verse nine. Read along with me. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother Or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness they do not know what they are they do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them there are two powerful postures that John is teaching us just in these three verses John who spent time and saw how Jesus lived And this is a really important clarification, that John not only heard what Jesus said, he saw how Jesus lived. And because of that, he reminds us that if we love our sister or brother, we are walking in the light, and there's nothing in us which causes us to stumble. Note the distinction here in this verse. Loving others keeps us from stumbling. Have you ever thought about this this way? Like, you might have read this passage lots before, but what John is saying, that it's not just a nice thing to do. It actually keeps your heart safe. The Greek language here could mean that, and some of you might have read it this way, that if we love our sister or brother, there's nothing in us which causes others to stumble. We don't make others fall or put, uh, or put in a place of danger. And of course, that's perfectly true. And some of you have read the passage before that way, and that if we're loving, it will help others be loving. It won't cause others to falter. And it's kind of a pay-forward effect. If you pay it forward, they'll pay it forward. They'll pay it forward. If you buy their Tim Hortons, they'll buy the next guy's Tim Hortons and so on. But it's much more likely that John is actually saying, based on the Greek language here, that if we love our sister or brother, there's nothing in us which causes ourselves to stumble. Loving others is good for you. John is saying by entering this posture, this discipline, this way of life, it's actually healing for you. That is to say, love enables us to make progress in our inward life, to heal, to grow spiritually, to mature, to grow in wisdom. But hatred makes any progress impossible. Isn't this true? Consider the tension we are experiencing today in our culture, in our city, in our country, in our world. Consider the tensions we are experiencing every day and we hear on the news, we hear from each other, we hear from our neighbors, we hear from talking to one another. Anxiety, fear, stress, the unsettling that we have felt in the past few years as the world is experiencing and during a global crisis, our worlds and our literal world has been disrupted in so many ways. This unbalanced, disrupted life has led us to think of others, especially those we disagree with, you know, those who don't see the pandemic in the same way you do, those who don't think of medicine in the same way as you do, those who don't see politics in the same way as you do, those who don't think of human rights in the same way as you do, we see those people in a negative and, dare I say, hateful way. This unbalanced, disrupted life has led us to think of others in a I want to say hate over and over, but maybe some of you would push back on that and say, well, it's not hate, it's just dislike, or it's just I'm standing up for rightness. But whatever it is has helped us see the other person as somebody removed, somebody not close to us. And we can't help be annoyed and mutter about them, shake our heads at those people who are not doing the quote-unquote right things, And this posture of pride, judgment, confusion, anger, and hate has not put any of us on either side of the issues on the right side of history. It has made us unwell, unhealthy, pained, anxious, and so, so tired. Have you noticed thinking or saying, well, I'm doing the right things. Why am I so anxious and angry and tired all the time? It has made us unloving, and by doing so, has hurt our own hearts. John is saying the solution for this is inward, spiritual work that begins with loving others, an outward posture of love. Inward work starts with outward life. That is the hard work of inward healing is aided by actions of love towards other people. Loving others helps us and heals us. See friends, healing is not found in winning an argument, proving somebody wrong, shaming somebody, gossiping about somebody, mocking somebody. It's found in loving others. When we think of it, it's kind of perfectly obvious. I mean, if God is love, and if the new commandment of Christ is to love, then love brings us healing. And the near it brings us healing and near to, to others, to inward and outward peace. Hatred, on the other hand, not only separates us from others, but divides our own soul and spirit, causing anxiousness and pain and frustration. It separates us in our spirit, but it also separates us outwardly to others. So John is reminding us, love others so that you don't stumble. Now the second posture that John wants the church to know and learn is that anyone who hates his sister or brother walks in darkness and does not know where he's going. Because the darkness has blinded them. That is to say, hatred makes a person blind. And this too is perfectly obvious, isn't it? When we have hatred in our hearts, our our powers of judgment are obscured. We simply cannot see an issue, a person, or a community clearly. Think about it. How much do you want to agree with someone you resent, hate, dislike, or annoyed with? Even if what they're suggesting to do is really good for you or really helpful for you. It's simply impossible to agree with them, to see eye to eye with them. Our anger, our resentment, our frustration, our our hurt blinds us to see any good in that person or to to even recognize them as your neighbor, as your sister, or as your brother. Hate blinds us, and more than just uh, blinds us, it drives us to self-destruction, to a cycle of pain, hurt, abuse, and even addiction. Hate destroys not others. Hate destroys you. John reminds us in our waiting for hope that love, on the other hand, enables us to walk in the light. What he means by by that is that love allows us to see clearly, to see correctly, to see yourself and others around you correctly. Light illuminates life. In light, we don't see others as strangers, as others, as something removed, but begin to see them as divine image bearers of God. But what is love? Some of you might have had a song come into your head when I said, but what is love? And this is where we come to the crucial and focal point of the biblical love. Biblical love teaches us that love is not easy. But far from being some lofty heart commandment tossed at us from the skies, it is is a reality first and foremost lived out by God himself. So our desire for love is real because it's God's instituted reality. But it's not easy. Austin, in the first message of this series, reminded us that Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies about him in the prequel in the Old Testament. The amazing writing of Isaiah spoke of Jesus as a suffering servant. Biblical love illustrates to us that love isn't easy. You see, Jesus' path was not easy. We read in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, the passage that Jesus goes on to fulfill, that he, that is Jesus, was despised, rejected, suffered, both physical in his physical body, but also in his soul and spirit, in the darkest aspects of human experience. He was brutalized, humiliated, oppressed, abandoned, lonely, and murdered. We can be tempted to sentimentalize uh, the coming of Jesus, the incarnation, the birth of a king, into something just soft and nice and cushy, but it was a sacrificial act of love. Love, friends, is not easy. It's a sacrifice, but it's also good. Love is hard, but it heals. It heals you by how you love others. The exact template that Jesus set and lived. He lived a life of love through sacrifice that brought healing to the world. The word love in this passage from John is the Greek word agap- ag- agapon. It's referring to an action of an unconditional love that is the highest form of love. But here's what's fascinating about this word. The earliest followers of Jesus who wrote the books of the New Testament in Greek, they didn't learn the meaning of, of agapon by looking it up in the ancient dictionaries. Rather, they looked to the teaching of Jesus and the story of his life to redefine the very concept of love. John in his letters remind us to remember Jesus, the God who suffers. His love for us is the healing remedy of life. Living out the way of Jesus heals us from inside out. Inwardly to outwardly. We love because he first loved us. Today in this Advent season, we remember the fulfilled prophecies of old, the birth of King of Kings, Jesus Christ. But we also await a new hope of his return. We wait for healing of this fractured world for peace and joy, and we prepare by entering the posture of love. We do this because this is the way. We do this because this heals and brings hope to us and to the world. In the week of love and Advent, we walk in the way of Jesus. You see, the Christian life has a tendency, as it did in John's time, to become traditional, to become routine, to lose its flourish, to be confused by all the voices we hear out there. But the Christ-like way of life reimagines, reignites, regenerates in us a way of hope. I'm just going to invite Dale to come up. And as he comes up, I just want to say to myself and to to you. We are privileged today to partake in the sacrificial love of Jesus. That's so hard. It's not easy. And in just a moment we will have communion. And so you can get your elements ready. And if you didn't get an element, make sure you raise your hand and one of our greeters will get you an element. But you can just hold on to it for now. This meal is a communal act of eating together as a family. And when we gather as a family, we are reminded that love isn't easy. When we break bread together in a meal, we take step, we take a step of love towards someone. We break bread together with somebody who may have hurt us. And we offer grace. It isn't easy but it's offered freely because of the one who first loved us. If you're here today and you have not known of this love, if you have not declared or haven't had an opportunity to respond to the love you're hearing about, I wanna give you that in just a moment because the communion table practice here is an open table to all. But specifically, I wanna give you a moment to accept the king of kings Jesus, the fulfiller of prophecies. Jesus, who is God, who is willing to suffer so that you could have life. Jesus, who is willing to enter your suffering and who wants to heal you. Who wants to guide you. And who just wants to love you. It's not a formula. It's not a magic word. It's an act of obedience. It's an act of declaration of thankfulness for Jesus and his life. It's an act of hope and joy to enter into the way of love. To heal and to await the full restoration of all things. To await a life with no more death and no more sorrow. So if we can all just bow our heads and take a posture of prayer for just this moment. And if you want to make that declaration today, if you want to accept Jesus as your Savior, if you want to say, yes, I am so thankful for your love for me, I'm so thankful that you're willing to sacrifice. And I want you to be the king of my life. If you're ready to make Jesus the king of your life, to step into your life and be your savior, would you raise your hand? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for making that declaration, for stepping into and trusting Christ with your life. If you raised your hand, would you pray in your heart these words with me? Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you for dying for the sins of the world. Jesus, I accept you as my Savior. Thank you for your love. Jesus, be the King of my life. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Just give a hand to those that have made the decision today. What a great step of faith of declaring Jesus as their King. Brendan Manning said it this way God entered into our world not with a crushing impact of unbearable glory, but in the way of weakness, vulnerability, and need. The world does not understand vulnerability. Neediness is rejected as incompetence, and compassion is dismissed as unprofitable. But in the weakness and poverty of the shipwrecked, at the stable would come to know the love of God. So today, as we await for the return of Jesus, as we celebrate his arrival as a child at the stable, let us come around the Lord's table, Let us spiritually gather as we participate in an act that Jesus himself instituted to remember him until he returns. You see, communion, like Advent, is an act of remembering, an act of waiting and participating in sacrificial love. The way of Jesus can be completely boiled down to love God and love others. This is the healing act for our world. Love God, love others. This will heal you and the world around you. So in the hard and painful season of rejection, the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and said, this is my body, broken for you, and you can break it. Eat this to remember To remember that I'm coming back, that I'm sacrificing myself so that you can heal and live. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you eat? In the same manner, Jesus took the cup and said, This cup represents a new agreement. A new promise in my blood. Do this as often as you eat and drink the cup to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you drink? The Christian faith involves trusting that at the center of the universe is a being, a person overflowing with love for his world, which means that the purpose of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and then give it back to others, creating an ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love. As Pastor John comes up and the team comes up with him, to conclude our time together, would you bow with me to pray? God, we just thank you for your sacrificial love. We thank you how you have placed things in order just so that when we love others, not only do we care for them and provide for them and heal them, that we heal from that love, that our hearts get put together as you intended them to be. So God, as we step out today Help these words that we learned from John not just be words, but action steps of love. Help us to love our neighbors. Help us to love our coworkers. Help us to love our friends. Help us to love our family. Help us to love all those we run into so that we could heal. And ultimately, God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you came into the world. Thank you for the light that you have brought into the darkness. We thank you and we praise you. Amen.